Private Lender Podcast, Episode 134. The Private Lender Podcast quote of the day comes to us from Walt Whitman, who said, The most affluent man is he that confronts all the shows he sees by equivalence out of the stronger wealth of himself. This is the Private Lender Podcast, the show that shares practical advice and know-how for new and seasoned lenders, from private mortgages on single-family houses to joint ventures on commercial projects and beyond. Discover details about investment vehicles that you won't find at your local bank or online broker. Listen and learn from private lenders and real estate investors, as well as from professionals and entrepreneurs, as they share the details, strategies, and the insight that allows for successful and prosperous lending. Now, get ready to increase your ROI. Here's your host, Keith Baker. Hello, Private Lender Nation. Greetings and welcome to episode 134 of the Private Lender Podcast. I'm your host, Keith Bacon, and I'd like to thank you for sharing your time and your ears with me today. If you're looking for practical tips and advice on how to put the power of the banking system into your investment accounts, then you are in the right place. But if you want to learn from my mistakes so that you can both avoid and profit from them, well, then pull up a chair and pour yourself a drink, my friend, because this podcast is just for you. Because I'm dedicated to giving people just like you and me the knowledge and confidence for successful and profitable private lending. If you're looking to join a community of private lenders, then head over to the Private Lender Podcast Facebook group to connect with other private lenders and to share experiences, stories, and opinions. Just go to the show notes page for the link or simply search Private Lender Podcast in Facebook groups. And while you're at it, head on over to the privatelenderacademy.com. Actually, it's not the, it's privatelenderacademy.com to learn more about the forthcoming course on private lending and click on apply now to register for pre-launch discounts and other goodies. And it's the guys, I was a little skeptical when I first learned about uh, today's guest. I wasn't sure he'd be a good fit for the show at first blush. I didn't really spend a whole lot of time digging too deep, but after speaking with him for like a minute, I, I knew he had to be on the show, and so we, we booked it, and I'm happy to share Jonathan Dio with you today and uh, hopefully introduce you to him. And as I've shared in, in previous episodes, I myself am on a bit of a mindfulness journey. Um, I like to sign off uh, wishing you mindfulness from, from, from every episode, and just, you know, given that life has happened to me, my, myself, uh, in the last few years, uh, divorce, etc., um, you know, I'm really happy that someone has... a, a applied the mindfulness approach to money. And as I look back, I really wish I would have done this. Well, I wish I would have applied mindfulness years ago, but especially to to money, because I think, at least in my case, with the relationship with my ex, you know, money wasn't a huge issue, but it was it was large enough. And I think it had we both been mindful about it, maybe things would have been different, at least on the money front. <laughs> I'm not saying I'd still be married, but I really do believe that on the money front, at least the, the awareness and the understanding would have been a lot, a lot better. And I believe such an approach can eliminate a lot of the money pains and ill feelings that couples have. So let's go ahead and get down to the brass tacks of today's episode and get straight to the interview with Jonathan Dio. Lender Nation, we're throwing a curveball to you today because we're not going to talk about private lending at all, but we will be talking about money. But today's guest has a very interesting approach to money, one that I think I certainly want to use this platform to get out into the world and more people to learn, and that is mindfulness. And I'm very early on in my practice. I just started. Uh, fortunately, mindfulness was not court-ordered for me, so I'm doing this on my own, little by little. Jonathan Dio, welcome to the Private Lender Podcast. I'm excited to be here, Keith. And, and if, if the podcast is anything like our opening conversation, this is going to be a lot of fun. 
I couldn't agree more. And I just, you know, full disclosure and transparency. And when I was doing my prep for this interview, uh, I quickly stopped prepping anything. I have no agenda. Jonathan has nothing but good reviews on Yelp and whatnot. And he is in the uh, Berkeley, San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, if you uh, want to get in touch with him, uh, we'll get to more of that later. But yeah, just, I mean, just the whole, this, this whole mindfulness thing. I, I, I just, I, I don't have the words you do. This is your, this is how, what you do on the daily. So please, um, let's just start with um, your practice, your financial planning and financial advising, I should say, and, and how you bring that mindfulness element to uh, like we were saying earlier, like the complete lack of financial literacy that is, that is taught or, or the vacuum that is teaching financial literacy in the United States. So Jonathan, the floor is yours. I think maybe a little background makes a lot of sense. So in just a really brief nutshell, I'm a seminarian. So I came to California to study at the Lutheran Seminary, turned academic, Buddhist academic, turned financial advisor. So really the concept of mindful money comes after a long journey of like self-discovery and comparative religion and philosophy and psychology and trying to figure out how people work and decisions we make. And it turns out that after 20 years, actually, let's see here, I started in 1996, wrote the book in 2007. So yeah, that's 10 years. After 10, 11 years in the business, I had this semi-epiphany that it's the decisions we make that create our problems or our successes. And the question is, how are you making your decisions? And if you have a space between, oh my God, or yay, and decision, where you can think, you can make a better decision. So that's where mindfulness comes in, is creating that space between the stimulus that the world gives us and our response. And mindfulness turns out, you know, it has been studied for thousands and thousands of years, practiced for thousands of years, specifically to resolve this issue of our overreactivity to the stuff that's coming at us from outside of us. And turns out in finance, there's a lot of that. Putting those two things together becomes very exciting and became something that I was like, okay, this is, I figured out, this is my mission. This is what I want to share with the world. The external stimuli, the, um, and before we got on, I just, I sat on my stairs for just a few minutes and just started, you know, didn't really meditate, but just started noticing my breath, right? Trying to bring it in and, and try to, uh, you know, try to give that some of that space because I am of a, let's face it, when it came time to, you know, ADD was going around all the rage in the late 70s and early 80s. And my father was convinced I didn't need any medicine. I just needed a good ass whooping. Right. That's all. That's all. You know, so I, I was, you know, I kind of I missed out on that boat, so to speak. I think that had I gone down that route, it, my life would have been a little different in terms of disidentifying with, to your point, like the news media, the, the Instagram hits, the all the stimuli that are, that are coming in and to your point, molding decisions. Uh, so, yeah, I just sat there and just try to find that space and, you know, not try to attach to any thought, and, which is which is hard. And, and, and that's why I'm like basically to me, this interview is like a guided meditation for me. Uh, so just uh, no pressure. But I like how you talk about that space and, and where this is all coming from. So a seminarian. Awesome. Hey, you know, it's funny. Friedrich Nietzsche was also studying to be a Lutheran minister before he went to the University of Bonn. But anyway, I, philosophy major. That's that's I'm sorry. I, that's a different episode. So you, you come, you had a journey, right? Personal journey, very personal journey, I would say. And you got to this point, been doing it for 20, 20, 25, 26 years now. So how, obviously you have got to be the one lone voice in the darkness, you know, talking about mindful money. So how do, uh, how do you, how do you, how do you convince people? How did you, you lead them? How did you lead that horse to water? That is such an interesting question because it's, 
I almost didn't want to name the firm Mindful Money. So, the, so the, the firm was DO Wealth Management. In 1990, in 2001, when I, when I started my own firm, I named it DO Wealth Management. And it was DO Wealth Management until 2019. So just recently, a couple of years ago, we changed the name. My book was published in 2017. And that's when I sort of put it all together, mindfulness with money and why that's important and, and how to use those two things together. But just to your point, I was the only person talking about it. And I, and I thought that if I brought it out there, you know, my peer group would say, that's soft, that's silly, that's, you know, you know how can you say that? You're full of shit, you know, that kind of stuff. And I would feel small. And I have, um, you know, you, you're catching me on a very weird day because uh, yesterday I discovered how much I'm afraid of not being believed in. Like I, you know, I need people to trust me and to believe in me. And if I don't have that, I don't value myself as much. So this is just, that's just a deeply personal thing. I'm coming to you know realize some things about myself after years and years and years of, of of like working too hard and trying too hard and all kinds of stuff. So so the fear of not being accepted in my industry or this philosophy or this belief system drove me to like turn away from it for years and years and years and years. And finally, I said to my team, I said, you know what, this is what I want to do, and I just sort of you know girded myself for the barbs. And they were like, hey, that's what you believe. That makes a ton of sense. And they were like, hey, let's do this thing. And so now we're all together. We're doing this thing in the world. It's just really pretty cool. And we're not entirely alone. You know, there, there are three or four books that are entitled Mindful Money. And um, 24 years ago, somebody won a Nobel Prize for behavioral finance. Daniel Kahneman, he's out, actually out with a new book. I recommend this book. It's a noise. You know, he used to talk about how we have all these biases and our biases are problematic, right? And in my opinion, the benefit of mindfulness is it enables you to sort of get over some of the biases. If you're aware of the biases and you're aware of your experience of the current environment, you can kind of go, wait a second, I'm having an emotional response I don't need to have, right? And so that's, you can get over some bias. His new book is like, it's all about noise. And in our social media world, there is so much noise. There's so much overwhelm. Our amygdala doesn't know how to deal with it. Like we're, there's lions coming out of the bushes every step of the, and we just, we just don't know what to do with this. And our, our bodies and our minds are not designed for this kind of a continuous, constant threat and stress. And so we just react, 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 react. So mindfulness becomes more and more and more important. And because there's academics saying that, hey, the benefit of an advisor isn't stock selection, it's not investment selection. It's not market timing. It's planning, education, and behavioral support. Help you do the right thing at the right time. Not do the wrong thing at any specific time. Not react. Act based on a plan. Stop reacting based on markets or something somebody said on, on you know, a pier set around the water cooler or whatever. We act based on a plan. We don't react to what the world is doing to us. The best illustration I, I have in my head for that is a little over a year ago, we ran out of toilet paper for a airborne, or I'm sorry, a nasal, what do you call it? A virus for the respiratory system. Okay. Not Kleenex, right? <laughs> Not for sneezing and coughing. No, no. We ran out of toilet paper. And I think that just, it just so aptly illustrates where we, and look, I ran, I, I, I was at the grocery store and I, there was a run on toilet paper. Oh my God. Herd, herd mentality. I was right there. I'm one of the bad people. I admit it, you know, but to your point now, you know, I've instituted a par system, you know, so I don't have to worry about that. a par system in the sense of uh, I used to work at a bar 
And so each bottle of liquor or each beer had a part. Um, you always had to have 10 bottles at any one time, right? Or, you know, the high-end scotch, you just had one, you know, but the cheap well vodka, you had 20. So I do the same thing with, um, and of course, being here in the Gulf Coast, we're used to hurricanes and being without things for a while. So I just keep updating my hurricane list. And I, I don't do it just from June through November. It's, it's a year-round you know, thing to your point to like when Hurricane Harvey hit that my wife at the time was like, how can you be so calm? My day job and I'm an insurance adjuster. So I deal with risk and bad things all the time. And I told her, I said, look, this is an act of God. We've prepared as much as we can and we're fully insured. I, I, I confirmed all premiums had been paid. Insurance premiums had been paid. Flood, windstorm. We're good. You know, like we've done everything that we can. And then she really got mad at me when I threw a party to watch the pay-per-view fight right in the middle of Harvey. Because <laughs> I was so calm. You know, I didn't have to react, right? I was, I was prepared. So, you know, it's a long way of trying to really confirm what you, you say and it resonates and, and hits home. So there's a, there's a, this is a story that I, my dad told me the story. He was, uh, this is Cold War era. He's in the Navy. He's on a plane. And there was this guy on the plane that was so calm was always calm and he was very analytical. And if there was ever an issue, turbulence or you know, something was happening, my dad would look at the guy and he would say, is he calm? Oh, we're all good. If he was calm, we're all, we're all steady, we're good, right? And there was this period where they were, they, were, they were gonna land in Iceland, but an engine blew, right? And so they were like, oh my God, what's gonna happen? Um, are we gonna be able to make it back? Are we gonna go into the ocean? Not sure what's gonna happen. They were, they were doing reconnaissance. They were, uh, they were looking for submarines from, from, you know, the air. And so the engine blows, they're trying to get back to Iceland and he's looking at the guy. The guy's like, yeah, we got this. We're fine. He's, you know, he's calculating, he's figuring it out. Um, the other engine blows and they're like, oh my God, we have to start ditching stuff into the ocean. We have to start pushing stuff out the door. So we have enough, um, it's not buoyancy. It's, it's, it's whatever lift. Yeah. Enough lift. We got to stay above so we can get to the, get to the, uh, get to the coast and land this thing. He keeps looking at the guy. The guy's totally calm. They push some things out the door. Guy's totally calm. He goes, no, we get it. He's like, we have to lose another 300 pounds. If we can lose 300 pounds, we're going to make it all the way. No engines. Like they're just, they're literally just, you know, soaring. Um, Exactly. Totally gliding. And he keeps looking at the guy. And the reality is that the point of the whole story is we need the guy. In the Hurricane Harvey, you were the guy. But we need to have something to look at that is calm, that is, you know, collected, that is, because we don't have that, we all lose our shit. Like we lose our minds if we don't have somebody that's like, okay, wait, 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 wait. Back up a second. This is normal. Like, like you said, it's an act of God. These things happen. We, we prepare the best we can and we go forward. Be the guy. That's awesome. I say, welcome to Houston. I, I, don't, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, you know, we, we, uh, despite popular opinion, we do have good weather for about two weeks a year. And it's not humid. It's very pleasant. We get a lot of snowbirders coming, you know, coming down for the winter and whatnot. But uh, snowbirders, snowbirds, I should say. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I agree because it, it, it is so easy to, especially when it comes to money. So, I, I mean, I don't want to throw my parents under the bus, but I, I little peek inside of things. Sunday afternoon, Sunday morning, I went to my mom's house. My, my, my dad passed. It'll be a year in, in July. So we're going through the stuff, you know, I'm making sure. You know, mom, all right. My sister lives close to her. My nephew's with her. So, you know, that's all good. But we're going through 
my dad had a master's in chemistry and I was like, hey, there's this thesis. I'd like to keep that. You know, uh, that's that's a trinket that, you know, I'm, I'm cool with that. I'll, I'll, I'll dust it every week. And then we got to this. My mom just started laughing and she's like, here's this like from 1967. It was a certificate of completion from a financial education class. And my mom was like, <laughs> we just started laughing like it. My dad was not the best with money. But we started laughing about how funny it was that he took an you know, finance uh, education class, literacy class. And I started thinking, I was like, you know what? He didn't die in debt. You know, he, he, he was in the black. He wasn't in the red. You know, and I, and I started thinking about that. I was just kind of laughing about, you know, it, you don't have to be good. You just got to be consistent, right? And, and you can go. But having, having that background of money, you know, being sort of that middle class um, aspiring to, you know, they say, would you rather be rich? You want to be rich and famous? No, I just want to be rich. I don't want to be famous. I don't want people to know I'm rich, right? Yeah, well, yeah, right. So anyway, but when it comes to, you know, being mindful with money, budgeting, I can definitely see where if you can just give yourself a little bit of space and get quiet, your budgeting, your allocation to retirement and vacation fund and all that, I would imagine like once people get into that, your job is pretty easy at that point. Like once they get honed in. The most difficult thing we have is, and we do this with all of our clients, is we walk through the, a planning process. And in the planning process, we remove the crazy. Like we remove the kind of investment that would act, for example, like a Bitcoin. We remove the kind of investment that would act like, you know, a GameStop or an options trader, or we remove the expectation of the upside, we remove the expectation of that, that kind of downside. We look at averages, we look at long-term, we look at cash flows, we look at spending, we look at making decisions based on things that give us higher probability outcomes. And by removing the crazy, we sort of, we sort of create ground rules for how people work with money. And then whenever stress occurs, like they, okay, what, what did the plan tell me I'm supposed to do? Oh, I'm supposed to save this much every month, supposed to invest it this way every month, supposed to rebalance on a regular basis, Keep it simple. You keep it simple, you end up getting the things that you want out of life. If you get sucked into the crazy, which there's plenty of crazy to get sucked into, and you get sucked into the crazy, you lose out on the higher probabilities that you're hoping for. You lose out on the probability of the kids going to school without debt, the retirement income you can't outlive, uh, the legacy you want to live behind. By going into the crazy, you lose out on the things that, you know, the higher probability path to get where you want to go. So we talk about the plan and we talked about this earlier in the meditation, you know, you sit down and you focus on your breath. You sat on the staircase before we got on the call here, you sat on the staircase and you, and you focus on your breath, right? You in, out, in, out. And that focuses and, 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 and sort of desensitizes you to everything that's going on around you, right? In finance, in personal finance, your plan is your breath. It is the thing you focus on. When all the world is going crazy, you go, okay, what were, those, what were those four simple things I'm supposed to do? That's the benefit of planning. So once you have a plan in place and you have a portfolio that basically reflects the plan, not, we're, not, we're not portfolio wizards. You know, we admit it. No one's a portfolio wizard. Everyone is either lucky or unlucky. We are allocated. We are diversified. Thank you. Thank you for admitting right. that, for being the first in the industry. <laughs> right. No, no, and there, there are no wizards, right? There's no wizards. No one, can, no one can predict the future. No one can guess what's going to happen next. But there is still a way to build a portfolio. There's still a way to, to strategize on finance. And so we, we use those ways, and then we're patient, and we're disciplined. And the plan enables that. 
And when somebody says, hey, what about this thing? I say, hey, let's go look at the plan and see what, see what the plan says about that. Uh, and it just, and keep it simple. And that's how, that's how we get from where we are to where we want to go. I love it because I, I, I agree that every plan, my dad told me a story a long time ago about, or he showed me a video on how post-it notes were created at 3M. And that there was a uh, the research scientist had, I forget what percentage, three or 5% or whatever their annual budget was, was supposed to be dedicated for whatever they want. Like no project that's coming down the pipeline. Just, and this guy wanted, you know, st- something to mark pages in his hymnal when he's singing in the church choir, right? Simple, simple things like that. But I always think you should always have that gamble money, you know, like a small percentage. Like, so when Bitcoin does come along, right? And it's like, oh my God, we got the fear of missing out, which by the way, only puts you into a state of lack and wanting and is not great. But if you still want to scratch that itch, I'm a firm believer in fine. Take that half a percent, 1% or whatever you're, you've allocated into your point in your plan and know that you're going to lose it anyway, right? That's, that's like going to Vegas. Right? I'm going to take a thousand dollars to Vegas. I piss it away. I'm coming home, right? Or yep. I have, you know, but to me, that, that mentality, I think it's a healthy part of a, what we call it, asset allocation, right? Is just having- you know, the- we, we have, we have uh, I mean, essentially, we have a couple clients who, this is, I mean, back when, you, you may remember this, when, when uh, Steve Jobs was accepting an investment from Microsoft, right? This was, I don't know if this was late 90s, or early 2000s, but this is, so, so Apple's, on the, Apple's on the ropes. Apple is dying. They are not going to survive. They need capital. And we had a couple of clients that said, you know what? It looks like Microsoft's going to make this investment. Apple's got great products. You know, if you're an Apple user, you are an Apple user. You've got the phone, the watch, the computer, the iPad, the, the, the laptop. You've got, you know, you've got the accessories. And every year they give you a new dongle to attach things together. So it's like, if you're an Apple user, you've got a ton of Apple products. And there's lots of Apple users and they are uh, and I'm one of them. So I can, I can sort of speak, you know, not speaking out of school. I'm very loyal. I have, you know, when I think about a new computer, I don't think about a PC. I think about an Apple. Anyway, so this guy made it. He's like, you know what? This is, this is my fun money. But he's owned those shares through all the splits in over a 20-year period. It's his biggest asset, right? And that's the one he talks about. And that's the one he's like excited about. And that's the one that's the biggest one for him. And it's his biggest holding. And he's really, and he was right, the funny thing is on the path, there were four or five others that went to zero, right? He has one out of five massive winners. Good for him. Good for him. You know, that's awesome. We all have some winner that we've, you know, we've done really well with. Some, some folks, it's a real estate purchase. Some folks, it's a stock. Some folks, it's, you know, I don't know, an oil well. Uh, you're, in, you're in Houston. Right? Yeah. Uh, so, I'm not there yet, but I'm working <laughs> on it. But yeah. Working on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you, if you allocate just a little piece of capital to the to the Big chance, a percent, two percent, maybe, fantastic. But then, if you blow through that two percent, don't don't take from the from the serious money to refill the two percent money, right? Don't steal from Peter to pay Paul. Absolutely, yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, you got to be you got to be disciplined there. To, to, like I said, once it's gone, like that's that Vegas money. Once it's gone, yep, you know, it's gone. In a, in a former life, I used to hand my wallet to my friends before we walked into a casino because. <laughs> but they referred to, they got to see what they referred to as the monster would come out, Yeah, you know, chasing, chasing losses, chasing, you know, just making very bad reacting to um, poorly to poorly made decisions, I should say. But yeah, you know, that's the fun of gambling, right? But, you know, but to your point, be disciplined. Don't, don't sell your Microsoft or your Apple stock, you know, to, to go fund that addiction, that, that gambling side of it. I like I like that, 
a lot. So, okay. Um, sorry. So you're going through, you're going through the planning, you take us through, we get a plan and I like that. Cause that's sort of the touchstone, right? Sort of like, um, I have, I have core values and pillars of private lenders. So when, when there's a question, right, you go back to that touchstone to figure out, okay, no noise, no BS, you know, principles and methods, methods yeah, are many core, principles. Core principles. Yep. Right? Yep. Methods change, but the principles never do. Right. So, that's, you, you go back to that, right? So my, my core value, number one, is the return of investment, right? So if I'm loaning $100, I want my $100 back. That's the first thing, right? right? Then we'll right. talk about my 10% or whatever I get from interest on it or points, but get it back. Then get the, the, you know, the return um, of the, or on the, the investment. But it's um, also, it's, you know, it's never trust, always verify. And you got it. Like I've made, I've lost money being a private lender to a friend in the second position, you know? And yeah, I was angry as hell. But the thing that helped me the most was I was the last one. The buck stopped with me, right? It was my decision to pull the trigger and make that loan, right? So I can get mad at my friend all I want for cheating me out of some money. I let it happen. I allowed it to happen, yep. right? Yep. And so I know that's, that's, that's a lot of people that's, a, that's considered radical acceptance, but... Um, <laughs> It helped. Well, the, the first rule of investing is manage risk. The second rule of investing is to, you know, review rule number one. You have to manage the risk. <laughs> I like I like that. I like that. <laughs> manage the risk, review rule number one. I like that. Yep. All right. That's going in the show notes for sure. But yeah, so yeah, taking responsibility, but having that plan, knowing. So for example, like right now, it's uh, in the real estate world, it's almost obscene what the markets are doing, right? I mean, I understand California may be a little different with, with the, the, the flight, but I'm sitting there thinking, you know, if enough people leave California, hell, if the prices are good, you know, Pismo Beach, here I come, man. You know? <laughs> but anyway, but the, the real estate markets are crazy. And, I, you know, they're crazy in Florida. They're crazy. You know, um, Manhattan took a big hit, right? You know, everyone, it's nuts. And I see people chasing risk now. Like they want to go get 70% of ARV from a hard money lender. And then, you know, another 15% from me. And I'm like, hell no. Like what, what planet does that make any sense? That doesn't protect my money. You know, that, that doesn't, that hasn't helped me get my return of my investment back. Right. So it's, you know, everyone wants private money and it's funny. It's, I went to a networking event recently. Everyone just got their real estate license, their agent license. Right. I'm like, okay, not to be rude, but like, oh, you still got your full-time corporate job. You're still doing the corporate finance thing. You know what I mean? It's like, once you quit, then I know you're all in. Right. I never quit because my whole, right demographic is people who work in corporate America and want to invest in real estate and want to do it safely. Right. So I still, I'm a consultant now, but you know, uh, and I'm trying to get away from it, but I still do my daily, get my 1099, get my one, once a month, I get a wire and the accountant, you know, pay everything. But no, it's, it's crazy now that real estate is just nuts. Stocks. I mean, a little over a year ago, a friend of mine just texted me. He goes, uh, I just went all in with 80 grand in margin. <laughs> and I said, uh, I said, okay, good luck. I go, who did you not use the margin on? And I'll piggyback on. <laughs> Good luck. Oh, my God. He, uh, he, was, he, he paid back his margin by July of last year. Got above, got above board. And uh, I mean, look, there was nothing. I have zero finance classes, right? Like none whatsoever. But I knew intrinsically there was nothing wrong with the American economy when COVID hit, right? It was panic. It was fear. Right? And I wish I wish I, I could call, I wish I was Mark Haynes and say, hey, this is the I'm calling the bottom, you know, on CNBC. But I didn't. But it just seemed like, OK, I had a whole bunch of money I was about to put into real estate loans. I'm like, what the heck? Put it all in the fangs, 
you know, some of the other ones that popped and then, you know, everybody was a genius. Everyone's a genius when the, when the tide rises. Right. Right. So, exactly. Anyway, um, I'm, I'm rambling on uh, crazy markets. Do you also help invest or uh, consult with um, real estate investments or other investments? Like if I came to you with like, say Bitcoin, would you touch it or say, no, it's just, it's not an oh, no, investment. So it's, it's, it's a gamble. As a, as a financial planner. So as an investor, I don't personally invest in, I mean, I've invested in everything. I've invested in so many things. It's, you know, I've done oil wells, I've done real estate, I've done lending, I've done, I've done lots and lots and lots and lots of different stuff. My favorite two things are global equities. And then on the side, just because I love business people and, and love people to take risks, I do a little bit of angel investing as well. But, you know, my personal portfolio, the way I invest is basically equities broadly diversified. That being said, in planning, planning includes everything. Planning, I look at you know, real estate cash flows for people that have, you know, huge real estate portfolios. I look at uh, personal businesses, you know, one, one person shops and their, and their, you know, inflow and outflow and how I help them figure out the marketing strategy and help them figure out cash flow analysis and all that kind of stuff. Um, Bitcoin is an interesting, is an interesting question because it's not an investment really. It's a currency, right? It's, it's a, it's a speculative potential investment. It could go to a million. It could go to zero. I can make a case both ways. So I'm not actually advising clients to buy it or sell it. I'm just saying, hey, if, if you're going to do it, there's some ways to do it. You want to, you know, again, manage risk, manage expectation. And we have a, I've had a couple in the last six months, obviously, there's been a lot of attention paid to it. There have been a lot of courses, a lot of, a lot of classes, a lot of online stuff from people in the industry talking about it. I'm still not... After it hit 19,000 in, in, what was that, 19, 2019, the first time it really jumped up, uh, I said, you know what, if, if I said to myself, if it drops back to 3,500, I'm a buyer. Remember, it dropped back to 4,000. It didn't get to 3,500. It dropped to 4,000. So <laughs> I, I wasn't in for that huge uh, you know, run up to 50 grand. I missed it by 500 bucks, but that's okay. That's my discipline. Like I have a buy price that I think kind of makes sense. And, you know, there's always another thing. Like before... Bitcoin was huge. What was huge? Remember, oil went to 100 bucks a barrel, right? And so, so Exxon and Chevron. And before that, it was a whole bunch of dot-com things that, that were you know, crazy silly on the upside. And before that, I can't even remember. There's other things before that. Uh, actually, real estate in the, in the, in the mid-90s, real estate in, in 07, 08. Uh, there's always something that everyone is really excited about. The key, the discipline, the mindfulness is to just recognize that, hey, just because people are, a whole bunch of people are talking about it and it's exciting, doesn't mean it's a great investment. Stay diversified, stay asset allocated, you know, have a percent in crazy, always, always, you know, be open to a little bit of crazy, but, but realize the, the bulk of your long-term lifetime returns isn't going to come from one great trade. It's going to come from consistent, plan-appropriate asset allocation, diversification, and then rebalancing. That's, that's how you manage wealth. That's how you manage long-term intergenerational wealth. Boom. There, you just touched on it right there. It's, it's, and not to sound like my father, but in this era of instant gratification and, you know, it's hard, you know, like I, I remember like I, I got, my kids are 11 and 14 and they, they do pretty well with money for the most part. I'm working on a few things to, I'm not going to leave my kids money, right? Well, have you ever seen the movie Brewster's Millions with Richard Pryor? Oh yeah. Right? Of course. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So you're, 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 we're pretty much. Well, we're the same, same generation. Yeah. Man. Exactly. As I say, Atari, <laughs> Nintendo. But uh, you know, he's so you know, Richard Pryor finds out he had that rich uncle that he didn't know about, and he's got to spend thirty million dollars and can't keep any of it or invest it. He's got to spend it, and then if he can spend thirty million dollars, then he inherits three hundred million. 
So, you know, I am tying, definitely tying incentives to my, whatever I leave behind for my children. Because Hope they're better incentives. You know, spend this much, you'll get a whole bunch more. That's yeah, right. Yeah, I know. I'm not saying I'm going to put that incentive, you know, God, I hope I got 30 million, to, you know. But, but in, that, in that vein, like, you know, so like, for example, if, and I'm planning on doing a trust to have all this set up. So like you said, before my kids even get married or partner up, like this is all laid out. But, you know, if they make a decision like, you know what, instead of paying for a big wedding, let's do something small and put the down payment on our, our, our starter home. Right. Boom. That's a point to the positive. Right. You know, you know, show some delayed gratification and upscale or moving up. Now, school districts aside, you know, these things. But, you know, just show that you're show that you're deliberate and mindful about your money. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's, 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 that's what I want to put those steps in place so that when I'm gone, if they you know, if they don't get the money, it's on them. They got to look at themselves and say, how could I didn't follow these simple instructions from dad? You know? Because I've seen in my family, I've seen, we call them, you know, windfall events. I inherited $26,000 from my uncle passed away and I promptly went to Europe, right? Greatest education I could have ever bought myself. I don't, you know, I don't regret going. I could have put a little more back, you know, started that nest egg a little bigger. So my allocation was flawed, but my, you know, I don't, I don't regret that. But, you know, so I, but I've seen like, look, it was, I had the money. It's here. Oh, I got to pay tuition. Oh, I can stay another semester in college. You know, I, all of a sudden I have, I have this money. And then one day I broke my CD player and okay. Kids, a CD player is a little disc that played music back in the days, but, <laughs> and I go and there's no more money, you know? Yeah. And so I, I learned that from my, my inheritance from my uncle that, um, you know, here I am thinking that I'm wise and above, you know, all of this. No, I, like I bought toilet paper too last year when everyone was freaking out, you know? Um, so if having that plan, I like that. And, and, Anyway, so that's my plan with, with, with the future. Some of the things you're mentioning are, it's, it's interesting because they're, I mean, I, I had to go through this lesson of learning how to trade as well, or how actually how not to trade as well. And today there's a, there's a whole industry that's built up, you know, there's Robinhood, the trading app. There are uh, you know, very, the instant gratification finance crew is huge. And they're, if you're, if you're trading on those kinds of apps, you're the product. And if you don't realize that, that you're the product then you're going to get stung by this system. The interesting thing is they're learning how to trade. They're learning how to invest. And every loss is a lesson. Everything that they're, every, every, every lesson that somebody, if they buy GameStop, you know, when it hits the 400 mark and it goes to 200, that's a, that's a fantastic lesson. If they did it on a margin, it's probably an even better lesson. It hurts more. That's where we learn. That's where we have the best lessons. So when I started in this industry, like I bought my first stock literally when I was nine years old. And so that I traded a couple stocks in my, you know, when I was a middle school, high school, never made a lot of money, never did anything, you know, great with it. But I was really interested in the markets and things. Um, when I started in the industry, I was like, you know what? I'm smarter than your average bear. I'm going to trade options. I had, you know, massive positions in options in the late 90s, you know, dot com boom. Thought I was a genius, you know, lost my ass on many occasions you know, made some, lost some, you know, it was, it was really exciting. I didn't build any wealth though. I didn't, I didn't have a diversified portfolio that was also on the side that was just kind of growing or I had a couple of pieces of real estate. Those sort of, those were, those were nice. Those were, those helped me out. But every generation learns their lessons. Every generation learns how to invest. So, but, so my question was, it was interesting. I think you learned a lesson, right? You took the 26,000 and, and now this is, I'm doing the same thing. Like I made the mistakes and I'm trying to teach my kids the mistakes rather than let them make mistakes 
I'm trying to say, do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. But that's, they don't learn that way. They got to actually get the $26,000 inheritance, blow it, and then not have money for tuition. That's how you learn a lesson, right? This is, we're all going to learn these lessons. We all learn them eventually. Um, hey, let them learn. All I can say is thank God for the Pell Grant because uh, that came <laughs> in real handy when, uh, when I ran out of money. And I'd already been cut off by my parents at that point. And I like to... Uh, I like, to, I like to bend a quote from Better Off Dead. Um, it took me eight years to get my bachelor's degree. I'm no dummy, all right? I'm very well educated. I've got over 200 hours. Um, unfortunately, I only have a B. I should have a PhD and a master's with that, but I don't. But uh, anyhow, that's another story for another day. Quick question. Nine years old, your first stock bought it. What was it? It was First Bank System. And this was, you know, this was in um, 1980. This is before the SNL crisis. So I bought a I bought a bank before or in the middle of the SNL, the first SNL crisis. I lost every penny of that one. Oh, I was, yeah, I was just, it's funny. I was doing a, uh, an interview recently. We talked about the, uh, the SNL crisis. I brought up the SNL crisis. Uh, say, yeah, savings and loan was um, ugly, ugly, ugly in the 80s, man. That uh, just horrible. So you, so you bought your first stock because I'm sure everyone's like, hey, buy a financial, right? Bank stocks are all the rage, What's right? the risk? <laughs> yeah, what right, could go yeah. wrong? <laughs> What could go wrong? <laughs> That's funny. And so you traded early on. That that is not your average kid, man. You know, trading baseball cards, maybe stocks. I never, I never did. I actually never got into baseball cards. I never got into those statistics kind of things. I, I uh, so that the part of the story that uh, we, we left off in the beginning is I was raised with. I'm, I'm trying. I'm actually in the middle of pestering my parents to get their their uh, social security statements. You know, to to know what the income was like. So I don't really know what we made because I was a kid, right? Um, but when I was about 14 or 15, my dad showed me our tax returns one year. Uh, and they were, I mean, we made like $8,000 in a year. And we lived a family of four on eight grand. And like, this is 1985, right? So, I mean, $8,000 is not enough for a family of four. It is, I would guess, below poverty line at that point. I don't really know. Um, and I'm trying to figure that out. But the, the, the purpose, the reason I'm saying all this is, I was deeply interested in security and becoming financially successful because I had no concept of what that meant. I had no experience with it. My dad had a business that had a bunch of partners that went under when I was about three years old. He ran a bunch of different things that didn't really work out. Um, and when, he was, when I was 15, he had his first like real income. In the meantime, after I got out of preschool, my mom started, a, after I was out of preschool, she started a preschool. And that kind of kept us in food um, for a number of years, but, but I didn't have anything growing up. And I got to see my friends, you know, take ski trips and, and do things. And if, if I wanted to go to that soccer tournament, I had to, I had to make money to go to that soccer tournament. I had to figure out a way to make it happen. If I, if I um, you know, wanted to Anything I wanted to do. If I wanted the Atari, I never had a Nintendo, but if I wanted the Atari, new Atari game, I had to find money to, to do that. So I, I worked, you know, full-time summers when I was 12. I worked full, full-time school year when I was 14, you know, and I've worked ever since. Like that's, it's always been in order to, in order to have, I had to create and build and work and save and invest. So I was very, very interested in stock market as a tool for building wealth when I was very young. And then I took that detour because finance was so boring by the time I got to college, I took the detour into philosophy and religious studies and became a seminarian and did all that. But it's like, I wanted so badly because I didn't have. Um, and it's interesting because now I have, my kids want for nothing. And I think, I've, I think I'm breaking them. I think I'm hurting them 
by giving them too much now. And that's, I think if I look backwards 50 years from now, I'll know a lot more. That's my, if I have a fear, that's my big fear. My fear is I've given them too much. It's, you know, it, how do you look at one generation and say, how dare you give us better than what you had, right? That's what we do, right? Yep. That's, um, so to your point, I mean, a very similar background, you know, um, well, I remember sitting in, in line to get gas in the 70s with my mom and we had, um, I can't remember the model, but it was a huge Cadillac with the 512. Uh, it was my grandfather's and when he passed, my dad got it and that's what, it was so long ago that my dad cut two by fours and made uh, and plywood and made the flat seat uh, flat and upholstered it and just put me and my sister in the back. No seatbelts. Of course right? not. No seatbelts. And we drive from Houston up to Oklahoma anyway. But I do also remember the early 80s when, you know, I get up, I leave for school. Dad's on the couch. I come home from school. Dad was on the couch. There was oil. The, just the bottom fell out of oil. Mm. And uh, my dad had to take a job as a, what do you call it, a headhunter. He was trying to get other people jobs just to, you know, have some income until, because um, he was he was oil field chemist until that came back around. That's, you know, that part of the upstream cycled around. And so, our vacations were we go to grandma's house or, you know, every now and again, we would go to like, say, SeaWorld in San Antonio or we do a weekend thing, you know, but like my friends would go for like two weeks, you know, the typical two weeks. Now, maybe they go back home to Ohio to see grandma and grandpa, but like it was kind of the same way. And I, I knew you know, my dad gave me a good work ethic because I'd say, hey, dad, there's a baseball car show coming up. And um, let, me, let, me, let me see if I can. 1987 Fleer. No, yeah, it was a flare. I bought the 1987. I was in baseball cards for one year. And um, my dad was like, oh, you want some money to go to the card show? Yeah, I was like, yeah, Pete, I can get a Pete Rose autograph, you know, whatever. You know, my dad's like, you know, he gambled on baseball anyway. But he was like, well, go earn the money. So once a week, he would wake me up before uh, sunup. We'd put the lawnmower, the weed eater, and the extension cord in the trunk of his car. And he'd drive about a mile down the road. And um, this lady in his Sunday school class, she was a single mom. And I made five bucks for cutting her grass. And I'd have to push everything back. And, you know, and then I'd see like my friends going to swim practice or whatever, you know, and there I am on the street embarrassed. And, you know, before my dad passed, I thanked him. I was like, thank you for being a hard ass. I was like, I hated you. I cursed your name all the way down Greenway Drive. It was a mile long, <laughs> you know? I said, but because of that, you know, I'm, my kids aren't going to see me sitting on the couch worrying about where I'm going to, you know, I'll, I'll diversify, right? You know, if I, I'll, I'll be an insurance adjuster. I'll paint houses if I have to. I don't, right. You know what I'm saying? Like, oddly enough, both my mom's parents and my dad's grandparents both owned grocery stores. So the entrepreneur is there in the family, right? The business owner is, is there. And, but my parents being born in the Depression, the late 30s, education was everything. Come hell or high water, you get educated, go, go make money, right? So out of that, then they put us up in the suburbs of Houston, you know, and to your point where, you know, we, now I'm, I think I'm a detriment to my kids because everything is, everything is at the fingertips, you know, it's all right here. And my kids haven't had to lift a finger for shit. I'm sorry. I, I mean, they haven't had to do a thing. I know this word, we're not a rabbit hole in this hardcore. No, I mean, we can bring it back though. And this, I have a photo of my son at 10 years old. I worry that I give him too much, but then I remember he's 10 years old and he's doing his own laundry. Like, so he does work, he does do stuff and he's 16 and he's had a job for a year, year and a half. And he works at a local deli. My daughter, who's 13, she, and bef before he worked at the deli, he opened and closed the neighborhood pool. Like he'd get up, he'd get up in the morning, go over before school, sweep the deck, empty the garbage, you know, open the umbrellas and uncover the pool. At night, he'd go over, sweep the deck, empty the garbage, cover the pool, close the umbrellas, right? So that. 
And my daughter does that now. She does it maybe three weeks out of the summer because there's about 10 kids that share the job. But it's so it's not that they don't work at all. It just seems like we do give them way more than we got. You know, the, I remember I wanted to have jeans without patches on the knees, right? I, I wanted to have jeans that weren't used before I wore them. Um, you didn't want tough skins. I did not want tough skins, but that's what we got. <laughs> that's what we, with patches. That's you right. had the tough skins with the patches. That's Use how bad you were skins. on the bicycle. Yep, that's right. That's right. They don't have to worry about that, but we still make them work. We still, we still make them work. They do their chores. They do, and, and they every second of all that work, they're complaining. They're like, none of my friends have to do this. I can't believe I have to do this. Um, my son has actually turned a corner where he's like, you know what? I like going to work. And this summer, he's like, you want, you want to go to this camp? Because no, no, I need to, I need to work this summer. So that's pretty cool. I mean, that's, I'm pretty excited about that. I'm, I'm very proud of him for that. Then the abs- absolute 16 and he's like, I want to work instead of go be with my friends at some camp. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, that's big. That's, that's big. That's good. That's good. Like maybe, maybe, maybe you're doing something right. Maybe you're doing something right. That's, Something's right. Something's I guess, wrong. At the end of the day, we learn by watching. Right. More than anything else. Then so to your point, telling your kids your mistakes, this is where I messed up. There's a benefit to it. And I mean, I've, I know I've talked ad nauseum to my kids about, you know, mistakes here and there. But I was like, but, you know, look, it's a mistake. You move on. Right. But to your point, until they feel, until they go to the ATM and it says, eh, nope, no money. That's a pretty powerful moment in a person's life when it's like, oh my God, that's that pucker, right? Oh like, no. <laughs> oh my God. And so it's, but it's hard to, when it's your kid to see that, right? But it's, it's the best thing for me. Like there are many reasons why I'm divorced, but one of them was my attitude towards my kids getting hurt. I'll give you a prime example. When my kids were real little, I was cooking dinner, had some pots on the stove and everything. And one of the handles was kicked out a little far, you know, and my wife was like, Hey, you know, turn it to the back or whatever, you know? And I say, all right, you know, I was, I forgot. I was, I was in the middle of something. I was watching the kid make, and she was fine. And she's like, what are you going to, are you going to do it? And I was like, oh, she, she touches the pot. She'll only do it once, you know? It's <laughs> the lesson my dad taught me too. <laughs> it was that? It's a lesson my dad taught me too. Yeah. You only touch, you might touch it, but you only do it one time. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm not, now, you know, my dad was like, just don't get mangled, maimed or dead. You know, like, you know, there was that limit, right? Like I'm going to let my kid get hurt up to a, a certain limit. We have to, but we, yeah. we take too much, too good a care of them. Like we, we have to let them make mistakes. We have to, that's how they learn lessons. Our best lessons are stuff that we do wrong. 200 years ago, average life expectancy was maybe 40 years of age. You had to get your together quick to live out there. Now it's like, well, you know, this sounds, this is going to sound really bad, but compared to what I grew up with, like the words or the phrase, like, well, how are you feeling today? That, that just doesn't happen. It's like, what did you do to survive or win? You know, like, what did you do in order to, you know, so I'm hoping that I, you know, me being a workaholic, I, I try to weave in the schedule with the kids. I'm hoping that my example, you know, rubs off and tell my, my oldest is 14. I tell her, look, you know, in two years you can work. That means your makeup, your Spotify subscription, you know, all that can be paid for out of your own pocket, you know? And if you're not, if I'm not paying for it, I have no say the way I look at it. Right. Except I do pay for the phone and I control the phone. Yeah. Anyway, we'll get that's a <laughs> story for a different time, but that's kryptonite so, for um, the kids. Yeah. So how do I'm, I'm going to ask you this? Yeah. What does that mindful space look like when you, when you personally are saying, maybe I'm doing too much for the kids. Like what is for me, as I always call it the fear motor. There's like this, there's a certain frequency in my chest that that's my anxiety and my fear. Right. And when I think about doing too much for my kids, there's a little bit from the chest, but there's, there's an, un, I haven't been able to put my finger on the other emotion. Right. So like when you're sitting back 
being mindful about your children, where, what is that space? Like what's coming in for you? Uh, I guess I'm not trying to, yeah. When you disidentify, pull away from it. Like, what would you tell yourself if you were counseling yourself on, it's, I'm giving my kids too much. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a great, it's a great question. I, I think that I kind of, I kind of just referenced a little bit. I, the first thing I have to do is I have to, I have to remember, you know, their world is way different than my world was. Right. So they're going to have unique circumstances and unique lessons that they get to learn. They are way smarter than I am in terms of their academic learning is far more advanced than mine was at their age. Like, and so they're, they're, they're learning different things a lot more quickly and their, their social world is completely different than mine. Um, so, I mean, the internet didn't exist when I was a kid. Like they did cell phones, forget it. Like that, that wasn't even, no one even dreamt of that yet. Unless you saw. You could float a check in the good old days. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. There, there's a, none of that for them. So it's a, it's a totally different world and there's lessons that they have to learn that I never even had to think about. So what I do is I go, okay, what are the things I really want to, I want to um, give them? What are the lessons I really want them to learn that are really important that I think are uh, timeless? And I think you've already touched on one. It's, it's that work ethic. It's the idea that nothing is, nothing is do you, you, you have, whatever it is, your out, whatever your outcomes are. Sure. You have, you start off with a situation. You have conditions to your life. You were raised in a certain location. You, you were raised around a certain kind of people. There's conditions. And those conditions include things like race and gender and all that stuff. Financial capacity. Like you have conditions. But outside those conditions, everything else is choice. Everything else is a decision you make. A decision not to work means you don't get to do some stuff that you want to do. A decision to work means you can do some of those things that you want to do. You know, a, a decision to, you know, try this drug at this age leads to other potential problems. And so I try to just really make sure that they understand that life is a whole series of these trade-offs and just to be aware of the trade-offs. And if they understand that, I have to trust that they're going to make the decisions that are the right ones for them. And then I have to, and they're, they're 13 and 16. So we're past the formative years. Uh, and now it's, I'm trying to be a cheerleader for anything that they want to do, trying to be there to support, be there to, you know, be, you know, literally be the rah-rah guy and say, Hey, that's fantastic. You know, have you, and, and if I ever say things like, Hey, did you think about this instead? They get really upset by that. Um, they hear it, but it's really deeply upsetting because I'm questioning their ability to make decisions, which is kind of my job a little bit, um, but I'm trying to do less of that. I'm trying to be more aware of the two or three very simple lessons I want them to learn and just be rah-rah about all their things that they want to they accomplish in their life and just be really excited for them and really happy for them and, and always be there you know, and ask the question, hey, how are you feeling? <laughs> so, you know, tell me what's going on in, in your world. And let me know if I can help at all. I look when uh, you know go, when I'm when going through the divorce. I um, I saw a certain look on my youngest in her eyes. My ex was scolding her. For, <laughs> little background. My little my youngest. It's her world. We just, we're just allowed in it. Okay. She walks between the raindrops. Okay. Like she got a lot of her daddy in her. Okay. So anyway, she was getting chided or scolded or whatever. And but I saw a moment where it was the weirdest thing. I could see my mother-in-law in my wife at the time. And I don't know what exactly my youngest was feeling, but the look in her eyes, I had the same one and just grace of God or whatever. I was like, let's stop. 
Like, and I'm not, I am high strung. Like I have two emotions, happy and pissed off as hell. That's what I grew up with. Right. So those are my two. That's what I oscillate between. And for some reason I, I stood in there and you know, my wife, she was like, Oh God, you know, thank you. Like she could feel it coming on, you know? And then immediately we got, we got the little one. I said, look, do you want to go see, you know, go to therapist? And so I, I, I researched and found a girl who just got out of college and was in her apprenticeship for counseling the therapy and um, best decision me and the ex ever made for that kid. She's, you know, I, she can come back and talk to me now, like me, like if I get pissed, my wife would say, can we come back and talk about this later? I would say whatever, just to get out of the situation. My, my little one will actually come back and talk about it now, yeah. which is new to me. Huge. Uh, but it's a great, it's a great little space though. We can work there, you know? That's, and I think I, you know, I'm no, I am no child psychologist, but I think that that's the transition from being the, the guy and always making comments and always making suggestions to just being really excited for them and really happy for them. And Hey, good decision. And Hey, good thinking. And, and, you know, here's options, here's stuff that here's ways to think about it. I think that, I think what that transition does is it, is it enables them to come to you because you're just, you're there to help them. Right. Right. That's it. Remove judgment. That's the, I mean, that's the definition of mindfulness is the non-judgmental awareness, right? And if you can just be calm and settled and let them live their lives. And they're, I mean, they're driven by their amygdalas. Their frontal lobes aren't even developed yet. So their amygdalas are driving all their decisions, da, 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 da. but you're just there. You're that calm center. You're that, you're the guy in the plane, right? You're the guy that's, you look to the guy that's calm, that's figured this out, that's, that's steady. And you need to be that guy for them. And that's who I try to be. Absolutely. Uh, it also reminds me, I, I go to a lot of chemical plants and refineries and you know, there's always a safety orientation when you go in and I say, you know, but you have to go through it, right? It's like mandatory. But I tell them, I say, go, did you go through the orientation? I said, look, I'm going to make this real simple. I'm going to wear my hard hat and keep all my PPP on, right? PPE on. I go, if you walk, I walk. If you run, I run with you. Okay. It's real simple. It's, <laughs> if there's any alarms or anything, I'm looking to you. And, you know, now, you know, maybe we go to a muster point and wait to get counted and cleared. What are, you know, maybe we get the hell out of there, whatever the case may be. But yeah, the, the, the lack of judgment, because I think that is, oh, are you familiar with um, Sherry Huber by chance? Anyway, I might, screw it. I'll, I'll leave this in. This is the book I'm reading. Be the person you want to find. She's a um, Zen student teacher over 30 years, founded all this stuff. I find my days are so much better if I just read 10 pages. She's got like 20 books. 10 pages of her book. It takes five minutes. It's written so a child can read it, right? It's no chapters, all stream of consciousness, just, you know, talks about identities, talks about conditioning, you know? And so when I got in my mindful practice, it was what I hated the most was when I would, it was cringing. That's use my kid's word. It was cringe because I realized like, that's not me. That's my dad saying that, or, or that's my mom's fear. That's not me, you know? And here I am putting it right back down to the, you know, the next generation. So if nothing else, if I get nothing else from mindfulness and meditation, and I just started, I just went to my third yoga class recently. So I'm all on board, you know. Yeah, come talk to me in a year, see if I'm still doing it. But yeah, exactly. Right now, I'm happy. <laughs> but I do surrender yoga, so it's not very active. So it's just, you know, it doesn't hurt. It helps anyway. I just, I just got sidetracked on all that. But anyway, you know. But if nothing else, if I can just have that space with the kids, you know, and I think it'll be all right. You know, as long as they can come back, I'm not judging them. I'm not, you know, I'm trying to remove that conditioning from me to them. I, I find know? myself stating the, I mean, and to me, this is totally obvious to them. It's not obvious at all. I, keep, I find myself stating, you know, it's, it's your decision, 
I'm just here to try to help. It looks like you needed help. If I say anything that's not, that, that you don't want to listen to, again, it's your decision. Like that's, this is, this is for you to decide and choose what you're going to do. I've just gone through a lot of stuff. And so I might have an idea that would be valuable. If you don't, if you don't find value in it, that's, that's okay. You're, you're on your path. Like I'm here to support. I love you. I, that's, I want the best for you. If you believe that we're on, we're on a great, we're on a great pages together. This is perfect. But uh, you're not real. You're a hologram. No parent I know says that, man, that is, that is awesome. That is awesome. I'm sure. I mean, okay. That's, yeah, I mean, certainly where I grew up, that was not heard. Like oh, no. you were definitely in the 21st century, right? Um, but I think that's, I think that's, I think that's great because at the end of the, you know, my dad used to tell me that well, the world need, needs ditch diggers too, you know. So like, I'm going to try to help you, you know, become successful and do what you want to do. You know, and my parents they pushed education coming out of the uh, depression, but I, I give them. They were, you know, my, both my dad mostly would talk to me about it and say, look, go study what you want to study. Go find something that that grabs you. That it's not work. Right. You know, and so I did. I went, I said, hey, came home. I was all excited. I said, I'm going to major in philosophy. Dad's like, well, you know, I was thinking more along the line, something you can make money with, you know, maybe accounting <laughs> or mathematics, you know, biology, chemistry, you know. Um, and then when I came home and said I was going to double major in German, I remember my mom was like, why? You know? <laughs> so, I, oh, God, so I can read Kant in the original. Come on. Of course. Well, for me, it was, it was actually funny story. And I, I got to know we'll go way over time, but. So I did a study abroad. My favorite uh, in Germany, my favorite philosopher at the time was Friedrich Nietzsche, who went to the University of Bonn for a while. And I, my study abroad was in, in Bonn. So uh, right in the Hofgarten, in the big garden in front of the university, and then there's the, the, yellow, the yellow house. And so, um, you know, as you do one day, uh, trying to find a soccer game or hash, you know, depending on what, what day it was, I found three German philosophy students. And so sat down like what are you doing here and came up and I said well, I, I I took German because I want to read Nietzsche in his you know his native language in the mother tongue and I'll never forget this guy he pulls into his rucksack and he pulls out a Nietzsche book in English he goes read him in English it's much easier <laughs> that's awesome that's a great four thousand dollars for a study abroad <laughs> And then the German students are reading them in English. Oh, oh I digress. Man. Something's but, lost hey, in that, though. Come on. That's, that's not pure. Still, maybe they're right. I don't know. Well, the problem with Nietzsche, he loved using ambiguous words, right? So if you looked at, say, the colloquial definition versus a more scientific or ancient definition, a lot of native speakers are still scratching. Like, how do we? And so when you put it into English, you know, like anything that's translated, you know, there's assumptions made by that translator, that interpreter, right? So they're, long story short, um, I read about half of one of Nietzsche's books before I went back to the English and just, you know, it was much, it was much easier. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, Jonathan, uh, how can people get a hold of you, man? Thank you so much for this. It really means a lot to me. It's been very beneficial to me. And I hope the, I know the audience will get something from it, but how do, how do they get a hold of you? Yeah, the, be the best place to go is to go to uh, the website. It's mindful.money. And that's the sort of launch point for all your social media. There's a contact us page there. Uh, you can see the courses. You can see the wealth management services. It's, it's, it's all there. It all starts there. The place that uh, if people want to connect, LinkedIn and Twitter are my two, the two places I, I hang out the most. Twitter, huh? Okay. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad to see Twitter still hanging on with, with our generation. You know, I, I stopped using it for about four years. and I just recently came back to it, which means for the, 
vast majority of time it's been alive. I've not been a user, but I was a user early on and I'm a user again. And it's, you know, it's a, it's a great way to just uh, choose what you listen to, you know, choose what you comment on uh, and just have to be aware and choose, choose wisely. Absolutely. I, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more that. Um, yeah. Don't be a troll, right? I exactly. guess is the yes. And it's, okay, so mindful.money. I like that. www.mindful.money, I assume. Uh, yep. Or just mindful.money. Either one will get you there. Mindful, mindful.money. I love the money extension. That's cool. LinkedIn or, or Twitter. And uh, yeah, and all, all this, of course, will be found in the show notes page over at privatelenderpodcast.com. And yeah, Jonathan, thank you so much. This has been well a lot of fun for me, which means I'm sure it's verbal diarrhea for the listener. But I, I really do appreciate you coming on and, and taking you know and, and what, taking your approach to money really and and discussing your kids and stuff. And this is very personal. We spoke for three minutes before we hit record on this thing, you know. So this has been great. Thank you for being present and thank uh, you for being mindful. And thanks for thanks for not like sticking to a list of questions and this, and just having a conversation. It was great. I appreciate it, Keith. Awesome. Take care, man. And there you have it, folks. I'd like to thank Jonathan DeYo for stopping by today and discussing how he helps manage and invest his clients' money by utilizing mindfulness. Please do look at what Jonathan can offer you and reach out to him to learn more. In fact, you can find his contact details and everything else over at the show notes page at privatelenderpodcast.com, episode 134. All right, that's going to do it for episode 134. Speaking of episodes, I don't charge money for this show, but there is a cost to produce it, and I would be extremely grateful if you would help me get the word out and increase awareness by leaving me an honest rating and review over at Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or whatever platform you're using to hear my voice. But it would mean the world to me if you could take the time and leave an honest rating and review over at iTunes, as that'll generate more buzz for the show and it'll help you to erase a lot of negative karma. And you know you have negative karma. <laughs> so don't forget to join the Private Lender Podcast Facebook group. Again, you can go to the show notes page for that link or just simply search Private Lender Podcast in Facebook groups and go to privatelenderacademy.com to put the power of the banking industry into your investment account. Okay, that's going to do it. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your time. And in addition to mindfulness and self-awareness, I wish you safe and successful private lending. I'll catch you on the next episode. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Private Lender Podcast with your host, Keith Baker. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit privatelenderpodcast.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and review, and we'll catch you next time.